I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show yeah cobbler yeah yeah. cobbler in italy yeah that's cool does that make you a method author yes So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And in the damn library today, we also are joined by Will Chancellor. Representing the Lurkatariat, longtime lurker, first time talker. <laughs> and we are also joined by Tournament of Books producer, Nasli Samantzadeh. Podcast appearances are not endorsements. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for uh, having you me. You too. This is a longtime dream of mine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, we're so pleased to have you both with us to talk about another banner year for the Tournament of Books. We ah! also- we should you know keep everything as normal as possible here even though we have more guests than we usually have um and talk about what we're drinking oh yeah Uh, it's it's our first it's our first sequel drink we were huge fans of uh angela flournoy's the turner house here and we had her um her on for the ain't no haint which was a red drink. And this drink, since it actually, we ended up using blue carousel and making a blue drink, this is the Haint. Um, and it is made with blue carousel, gin, uh, ghosts. <laughs> Real live ghosts. <laughs> and, uh, and lime juice, yes. And uh, it is haunting because it is haunting <laughs> us from after it was uh, dealt with by the sellout in the final, final. 12-7 is respectable. Yeah. 12-7 is, is a higher spread than we've had in years. Yeah. yeah. That was, it was, it really, there was, at the beginning, I guess that must have just been how you guys uh, organized it, but it was a nail biter as it came down one to one, two to one, two to two. It was great. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the tournament is over. It is. Which means that we need more things to read, so it's time to for what you buy. What you buy? What you buy? 
do you want to start us off, Drew? Uh, sure. I picked up two novels. This is going to be, I think, the third one I've mentioned on this show. I, or the second and third. I picked up two more Cesar Ira books. Uh, oh, yeah. You've gotten obsessed. Conversations and the Literary Conference. Uh, I really am. They're, they're these adorable, tiny little novellas. And they all look cool. They look cool next to each other, which is always a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, I am really smitten uh, after having read just one to the point that I sort of want to just binge read the rest of them that have been translated. Hmm. Uh, how about you, sir? I um, I got sort of interested in this. I think it was on the in the New York Times. There was this uh, profile of this book that um, was a huge sensation, I guess, 20 years when it came out. Um, called Dark Debts by Karen Hall. And um, it bothered her so much that she rewrote it. That she, like, fixed Whoa. all the things that bothered her. And now, like, her fixed version is coming out this year. Um, and so I picked that up because it not only is, does that interest me, but it also had has, like, red flocking on the, um, on the pages. <laughs> so it's, like, dipped in blood. And it's something about, I don't know, a murder and a... And it's supposedly a really good romantic comedy as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm very excited to to read that. Uh, That's so fascinating. <laughs> Instead of just writing the same novel over and over, but doing a better job of it over the years, <laughs> like, literally rewriting it. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you buy? <laughs> um, the truth is that I have been recovering from a foot injury the past several months and just read garbage the entire time I was ill. I like reread a bunch of childhood stuff. I read a lot of Star Wars fan fiction. Nice. I don't know. It was a it was a long three months. But I and so I arrived here not having bought anything. And sneakily while other things were going on during this podcasting session, I purchased a copy of Fates and Furies to continue <laughs> <laughs> to continue my streak of reading more you know, more than more than two uh, books from a past tournament year before several years have elapsed. Um, I am going to try so hard to love this book. I like don't doubt that I'll like it, but uh, uh, like Drew's standing for it. I think well, well, I'll that'll be for, for, like first and foremost in my mind as I read. Oh, you're just gonna feel like Drew's like over your shoulder the whole time. Are you ready for our friendship to end? Do you like that? Did you like it? <laughs> you didn't like it. Uh, Will, uh, I just bought. Uh, Caitlin Greenidge's uh, We Love You, Charlie Freeman. Um, And uh, then I just bought the Turner House when uh, I was over. uh, I wanted to have it finished by today, but I failed myself. Um, And whenever I'm talking about any kind of book, I always want to plug Alice Oswald's Memorial. I think I've purchased five copies of that already in 2016 i think i i don't know that's the book Are that i buy why i can't find this book yes time that I go yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah because of you i always go and look in poetry section to find alice Oz, and it's never there that's it's, like a, that's it's a because you're buying it absurdist right. short story <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so the sellout by Paul Beatty is the big winner of the rooster um, this year. I and walked around the East Village uh, just going, looking for Paul. Just Be- looking for Paul Beatty. And I'm guessing you didn't find it. I did not. Didn't get arrested either, though. So, <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like Drew and I have sort of set our piece on the sellout. I'm curious what um what you two. It was my favorite book of the year. Um. 
and by kind of by a long shot i the the way that uh it's odd because it seems like this would be a reference that would apply to little life but the way that i think do you have you seen the movie goodwill hunting you know yeah. how he he recounts like how his uh, abusive father would get him home at night and just you know on the mean nights when he was drunk he would lay down a belt a switch and a wrench and just say choose you know and and uh, he's like and Robin Williams is like well I, I think I got to go with the with the belt on that one champ and he says no I went with the wrench and he's like why is that because fuck him that's why <laughs> and and, uh, and I feel like. You know, I, I feel like the sellout was like that in a lot of ways. Like the conversation on, you know, it's just it's going for the wrench uh, and really just taking it to a lot of embedded racism in society. And uh, you know, that's it's so rich on a thematic level. I think it'll probably be studied with the Afro pessimist uh, literature, like Frank Wilderson the Third, and like those that or Afro futurist, depending on how you take it. But there's there's so much on a critical level. But then the part that's really amazing on, you know, as a writer, just watching somebody take these bold leaps into the abyss and like just and land somehow on <laughs> like some invisible bridge, you know, and that's. I think more and more that's that's how I'm kind of finding the writing that I'm excited about in contemporary books or, or you know, just big leaps, things that, that really go out on a wire. We were talking, uh, Christopher and I were talking about uh, Heidi Julevitz's The Vanishers kind of in the same vein. And I read those books back to back. Uh, the sellout got on my radar because of Isaac Fitzgerald's early advocacy of that. Mm-hmm. Um, He's, he runs the BuzzFeed books um, for people who don't know. Yeah, and he's just a, a big champion of of uh, Paul Beatty and and that book. So he, you know, when it was in uh, before it came out, he he told me that I needed to read it. And that, the sellout really sticks with me um, still. Nosley, what it, what it was your? If take? it helps, I finished it on the subway riding over here. Nice. Oh wow. Nice. Uh, so you didn't like, read it before the tournament at all? No, my rate, unfortunately, for reading books that win the tournament is between three years. And four years. <laughs> I finally read The Orphan Master's Son recently. Um, but no, I, I like was really galvanized by this book. I loved all of the judgments about it. You know, everyone found something new and excited to say about it. It's exciting to say about it. Um, I really liked what Will said about uh, how it will be studied because I found myself as I was reading it like wanting the annotation of this book. Mm. Um, like you have the annotated Alice that's like every like weird reference um, kind of like blown out for you. And it's not pedantic. It's fun uh you kind of like see the layers that you missed because i think like a wide swath of people would get different jokes out of this book there are certainly jokes that i got and jokes that i missed um and i just really admired watching it and being like how did you pack so much in there mm-hmm. um I, I don't know how i want to know how and yeah I, well i i think that well i think that this brings up something sort of interesting from the tournament perspective at all and this is sort of a reading comprehension question Yo, what did you read and where did you read it? Did you like the book? Would you ever reread it? Did the words sink in? Do you have a question? Did you understand it? What's your comprehension? Reading comprehension. Reading comprehension. By talking about these books over and over every day, um, I find myself sometimes digging in on on opinions that I had and in other times um, ending up feeling like I was indifferent to a book as I sort of was for the sellout um, and then realizing I didn't really like it um, and and f- 
falling away from being like, yeah, that was just a fine book to being like, I actually don't like that book. Well, um, with the sellout. Yes. What was your, we got to get into it, man. What's <laughs> <laughs> Like what it, was the? It's it's pure. It's nothing from the aesthetic or the writing level. It's purely on a story level. I don't think it tells a, a very interesting story for me. I think it's inter- I mean, the story is really just bookends of the two Supreme Court sections at the very beginning and then the very end. Um, and you know, uh, part of that also plays into what Nosley was saying about the the level in which you can unpack that and you can unpack like the Thirteenth Amendment equating. Uh, slavery and incarceration and the way that that you know functions that's something that like kind of you could annotate some of the Supreme Court stuff and talk mm-hmm. about like some of the things that maybe he's riffing on I'm not sure but the but the funniest part for me I've assigned it to a lot of students and they've all skipped the first the prologue you know because there's like well, that why attitude. Is that? I don't <laughs> get that yeah I was like you're missing half of the story and really like that that to me is you know the two halves of the story but I think students are or like, well, if there's I something that's not it's really required. Fewer, yeah, like. exactly. Yeah. So I'm just going to skip over that. But I think that's, um, I don't know. I, I think the, the core story isn't really the, the uh, like the bus journey. I mean, it, it's just kind of like, I guess I can see where you're coming from with the drift being, you know, uh, less compelling as a narrative. Um, right. It just sort of, it feels like just one thing after another in the in the in a way of plotting and then plotting yeah and uh, then this happens and right. then this happens and it's like this is crazier than that last thing and it is crazier right but it just doesn't add up to a satisfying reading experience for me each chapter is almost like a sketch and in some yeah. senses, the sketches are set up with these like little plot elements, like, you know, suddenly he's a surfer and that's not something that we kind of like knew or had been told. Right. Um, so like, it's almost like they stand alone in terms of plot, like in terms of details. And then there's kind of like a loose plot that is binding these sketches together. Um, and that like helped me. I, I agree with you that I was not propelled forward by the plot and that could get frustrating at times. Um, but I guess evaluating on those terms that like it was using plot for you know this like incredibly rich prose like helped me kind of like move forward it's so funny because i immediately go to uh something like anchorman or like uh, any of the will ferrell sort of comedies which is just like it's really it's not really about the plot it's about like something that can get crazier and crazier as it goes along well, it's an interesting. It's an. It provides an interesting contrast with with uh, Bon and Bon Lu, which I think is kind of is a much more theoretical text in terms of like just you know also talking about body and about the way that uh, you know the way that the the black body comes uh, into the sellout and the incompatibility of the black body and and you know American society. Um, I think you see the same thing kind of. I'd be interested to hear if you had that same problem with with Ben and Bon and Bon Lu, if it's, which is way, I think way more meandering. Yeah, and well, like overtly I mean, political novel, really. Yeah, and and that's and that's almost because it. I, I said this in our um, commentary on it that it's not even trying to be taken on as a as a traditional novel, and since it's an untraditional novel, it doesn't have a traditional response. Um, and so, like, I end up, you end up just like having to contend with that book on the, the theme level from page one, which is, I don't think that that the seller asks of you. There's so with the sellout. There's so much of the the you know this is really going to be like generation hope politically. Like that's the motto that they had was that there's hope. You know, yeah. uh, especially you know for for 
young like high school black black high school students who've had that notion that like you know hope is the way you know into obama's america and then you have something like the sellout which is really you know like ta-nehisi coates book just a, a wrench to the idea that uh that hope exists like you know in the same way for black people that it does for white people or um and i i think that to me is what is like essential why i i've been trying to get this in the hands of everyone i know yeah you know under 20 just because like that it shouldn't be it should be a dialogue in at least i mean i tend to be more on the you know on the Beatty revolutionary side of things but this uh you guys all know more about this than i do but about his uh about how he bristled at the term that it was a satire. I think that's probably related to this conversation, you know, yeah. about like how he sees his own book. And did you, do you guys think that that mattered or like, do you think first, I guess, do you think the term satire fits? I, yes. I, I, I think it fits. And I think that it's, um, I, I, I am glad that we have authors that are contending with how books are, how their books are commentated on, but there is something that's there is a little bit that like when it's up when you're done with it when it's out of your hands how people take it is how it is and 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 everyone's calling it a satire and he has trouble with that or he thinks that it like causes you to not have to contend with it but i don't think that that's true it's the weird like um wolf of wall street the film was explicitly a satire and like scorsese made that movie to like he didn't want you to feel good leaving that movie and yet finance bros were like yeah that's what my life is like and it, and it like they missed the point of that movie um but i i i guess the tough thing is like i understand paul Beatty's point that like the book is also very sad and it's difficult to put any sort of like strong emotion into satire mm -hmm. because satire like the relentless thing is always the absurdity and the humor and the fact that the book is so sad and that like if you strip the humor away from the book it's like almost unbearable um but if you look at other satire i mean if another satire that is turned into a movie that people don't understand fight club I, that's interesting that you brought up fight club um there's something glib about fight club that I think that glibness is missing from the sellout. It's pleased with itself. It's like so sharp. It's very smart. It's very tongue in cheek. But I guess like no one could ever call Fight Club woke. And the sellout is so woke that and so like I guess its message is more urgent and more like the stakes are higher. And that I guess to me makes it more important than other satires I've read. I'm not a huge fan of the satire genre. Mm -hmm. Um but I do think it differs from even a modest proposal, although I guess it dealt with like nationalism or racism in its own way. I yeah. mean, I think that the the fact that it's dealing, that's what's just so incredible about the book to me, the fact that it's dealing with the hardest like issues, but doing it in this really bold, like, you know, in the end, how he talks about how they're like level, there's like level one blackness, level two black. And then there's like, what is it? Level four blackness when you just don't give a fuck. And he's like, this is where Richard Pryor lives. This is where Sun Ra lives, you know? And I mean, I think this is where Paul Beatty lives. Right? And then the book is just like, <laughs> level four like just you know going for it so the one thing that came up a lot in the comments about the sellout uh and that came up regarding some other books as well um is believability mm -hmm. 
And I mean, that I think is one reason that people are quick to classify the sellout as satire because of like, he jumps into the deep end of the unbelievability pool with lighting up a joint at the Supreme Court. And until like two weeks ago, we would have said Clarence Thomas speaking from the bench. <laughs> uh, and like, it just gets crazier from there. And I'm wondering if uh, you two have thoughts about believability he- both here and in some of the other books. I, I don't care about... I, I feel like uh, it's it's the author's job to make me believe that, the, that it's happening. So the believability that really bothers me or is when something lacks like an internal consistency that within the whatever the laws of physics of the novel are you have to be consistent within those and like one of my maybe one of my favorite books other uh, other than the sellout uh and one of my favorite books of last year was uh, Valeria Lucilli's uh the story of my teeth mm-hmm. and that had this all right so this is very personal i'm coming at this from getting sucker punched in the front four teeth knocked out when i was like 20 years old and i tried to have them put back in and the the orthodontist was like or was like no our dental surgeon was like no it it doesn't work like that you can't just i was like i have the teeth they're right here in my hand (laughs) he's like he's like no you can't just like stick them in and so that lack of believability of of like marilyn monroe's teeth being implanted bugs me a hell of a lot more than like instituting segregation on a segregated (laughs) school you know like but i took that to be like George Washington's wooden teeth of of just like putting them in a form and just like denture style like it, not that they were putting them back into gums but that it was like just a cosmetic denture thing and yet the only book whose believability we discussed during the month of March was A Little Life oh. <laughs> yeah Man. there was so much of that and I I I I believe so much of a little life as as something that is possible and in in our world not just the world of the book my best friend from college is both a barrister um and an incredibly smart woman and i was talking about the book to her she read it because of my comments in the tournament of books uh like devoured it in like a week and we were talking about it and her only believability point and this is kind of like to will's point about like the small things that make something unbelievable to her were that jude's job at the law firm was like the glad hander the person who like works with clients who brings like the the money maker and she just was like so upset that like this, this person at a law firm is like going to clients like soccer ga- kids soccer games and like buying them things and is like an incredibly sociable person that was the one thing about the book she disliked yeah the, the one thing for me like i i mean i think i i think i oh, there's this is just a big thing but the the one thing that stuck out immediately i was like well, if he's a genius in pure math, is like is that just like inherited from Goodwill Hunting, or is that like you know like because that's uh, you know the like the skill set of that also being prodigious at ancient Greek, which he is. You know, Jude is like both a math genius and a Greek genius. Who's you know uh, that that actual specific thing of getting to that level of math requires it tremendous amount of time or mm. getting to that level of Greek requires a tremendous amount of time. And like the time allocation of his childhood didn't seem to be that way. It's mm. not like, you know, it's not like he was left alone in a library, you know, mm. like there's something interesting that about the internal consistency thing with this, because <laughs> both of those points, I agree in terms of our world, 
But from like word one of that, before I actually even picked up a little life, I was like, cool. I know that this is not our world. Just from the way that everybody talked about the book, there was something I was like, oh, okay. And that book actually has this weird internal consistency. And the internal consistency is like kind of how outrageous and blown out everything is, whether it's the violence that's done to Jude, the opulence that he and his three best friends end up finding themselves in. Yeah, I think the the fairy tale, you know, uh, aspects reminded me a lot of uh, of Untamed State from uh, Roxanne Gay. I, I kind of put those two books together as far as you know, taking us all the way through really uncomfortable, you know, sections of of physical, you know, torture and um, the physical torture in a little life as broadly drawn as the like magical successful like success of people mm-hmm. we don't get any anatomical words you know like it mm-hmm. i don't know it, it's it's a testament to how powerful it is that it, it bothered people so much but it wasn't actually explicit mm-hmm. it felt it caused explicit feelings but it was not explicit and mm-hmm. that that the, that complaint about it like seems strange the one thing with little life i guess if it's not our world maybe it's uh van Van gogh had this really interesting theory of the human soul and he said that the soul is a spring and in order to ever ascend into heaven you have to take on all of the suffering and all of the burden (laughs) in this world to compress your soul enough to where eventually it'll spring forth into the heavens and you know jude is in a spring universe and it's just like you know give like give me the weight and i think to what you were saying christopher about him being you know about it being believable in in those terms like you know if it's that same kind of uh van gogh mentality of mm-hmm. of trying to you know act for whatever reason like seeking these situations you know un yeah you know maybe unintentionally but An- another reading of the book uh that i kind of like came about uh, through talking about with my friend last weekend was uh, the idea that the one way to look at the book the, the the success that all of Jude's friends have is so hyperbolic and so automatic it almost feels like the kind of success that when you're in your 20s and you're looking at your friends around you and you're like that guy he's such a good actor he's going to be so successful he, like you know this is just a stepping stone to him getting the next role and it's like all the way up or like oh his art the art he's making is so good look at it you know he's like scraping the money together for the studio in Lion City their success is, has almost this this childish cartoonish quality of of the success that you think you're, everyone around you will have when mm-hmm. you're you know in this idyllic like younger age and like I, I like the reading of the book that the book is 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 Jude Jude is this spring taking on all the suffering in the world and like casting these beautiful lives on everyone around him. And on a much more broad sense, this is this was an interesting year for the tournament of books because. The one of these, you know, A Little Life and Fates and Furies, two huge juggernaut novels, weren't in the final. These were very interesting um, things that got in because, like, there was just no way to not continue pushing them forward. Right. Um, while in previous years you had stuff like um, All the Light We Cannot See and and Station Eleven, which were gigantic novels. Uh, before that, there was. Um, you're better at this than I am, Drew. Uh, I'm thinking of the year that, and this is no disrespect to a book that very, very effectively pulled all of my emotional strings and had me crying at the end of it, even as I was like, ah! John Green's The Fault in Our Stars. Yeah. Which, like, 
you know, which was an enormous book that like the enormous the book enormous that year. Book. Um, and that is not what the, these books were. I think that that, uh, that speaks to how interesting and how different this year was. Um, one, one thing that I'm, uh, thinking about in terms of, of believability, but also in terms of like little books that sort of bubbled up and that people could not help, but like wanting to continue forward, um, until they were felled by uh, a, a worthy judge mm-hmm. is Anthony Mars Czar of Love and Techno. Um, Whew, my favorite decision of the tournament. Uh, I mean, Jeff is just a reliably like you, you line him up and he's always going to say something interesting. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it was well, it be- <laughs> the beginning when he said he hadn't heard of either one of these writers, <laughs> but I was like, huh, that's uh, like, because uh, I think, I mean, to me, Anthony Mara's like, I think at this point, as uh, I, I think he's well established as being one of the best writers of, of his generation. I mean, I think uh, I, I think he's and there's there's no way to deny that like the prose and czar of love and techno is fantastic. Like he's a, he's a great writer and that book kicks ass, you know? And I still loved the decision in that because it was just like, it was a writer's decision. You know, he's like, and he, he's, he really, uh, Jeff Vandermeer put his, his finger on exactly what was bugging me a little bit. And it was that I could see the stitching, you know, and, and specifically the stitching in the turns. And, uh, this is, I mean, the only reason I'm here, actually, uh, John Warner's fiction has fantastic turns, like the moments where, you know, where you have the pivot and and you think that you're going to head one way and then whoop, the other way. Right. The funny man, that's that whole book. Right. It's just like great turns and, and, uh, and the sellout I think has, has really unexpected turns. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's like. That was the that was what he seemed like he was he was reacting to was that the uh, he didn't he didn't name check it but the turn in the story of the of uh, the per, the forger who's imprisoned and then he ends up informing on himself I mean that's the that's the plot device of uh, Kessler's Darkness at Noon mm-hmm. it's like and when I read it I was like oh that's you know that one's that one is done in one of the like t- canonical top hundred books of the 20th century, you know? Um, and I think that's what he was. It seemed like that decision was responding to, to just the originality of the moment of the turn, you know, rather than anything else. And it's actually very revealing in reading in thinking about Jeff Vandermeer's writing, you know, about those moments where he's, um, how he's using turns, like how he uses turns in Area X. Something I wanted to ask was, do you think the book would have been stronger if you'd removed any one of the stories? Because a thing that people said was that reading all of them was too much or that like they fit together too well at the end. There's that complicated thing with books of short stories. Like I like un- unattached collections, reading them like separate so you don't draw connections. Mm-hmm. Um, but then something like A Visit from the Goon Squad where it's... It's a novel. It just happens yeah. to be short stories. And this, it felt like it fell right in the middle of the two. Like, it is connected, but I almost wish I had read them as individual stories. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, talk about some last thoughts on this year's tournament, uh, Will. Well, one well, pissed me off. <laughs> I, I was 
furious about the decision in uh, Story of My Teeth. Oh, yeah. Like, it was just, it just got jobbed. Like, <laughs> who is, so who is the guy that... that uh, Daniel Wallace. Uh, author of Big Fish, amongst, I think, some other novels. Lives in North Carolina. Awesome. The, the, uh, but owns a cocker spaniel. <laughs> he's uh, I don't I it was a it was a love letter to the book and then he was like oh but you know what uh, love letters shouldn't exist let's burn them all and all of these wonderful things that I've said about this fantastic novel uh, just don't count for shit and like you know I'm gonna advance what what was it it was up against spool right it was yeah up against a spool of blue thread the book with the worst cover oh. Oh. He did. I mean, the first paragraph was about how, you know, decades ago, this woman had to choose between him and another man, and she chose the other man. And, you know, sometimes you go with the boring guy. <laughs> I'm not comparing that to what these two books were, but that seems to be what this woman did a long time ago. Uh, that's really funny. Um, well, did any decisions uh, piss you off? You know, I um, I would have chosen a different book at the end. I, w- I was a huge, gigantic... Uh, unabashed fan of the Turner House, and it—I think it's just like it's just one of those books that I wasn't expecting to fall for, um, and in the way that maybe Daniel Wallace fell for a blue, blue thread. Like I just—I didn't—I wasn't expecting to get so attached to characters in the way that I was. Uh, oh man, that first judgment! I just, I just, fuck <laughs> that judgment, man. Ah. <laughs> And, but there's always one book. There's always a book that you're like, how is this book still winning? Mm. You're talking Bats of the Republic Bats of versus the Republic over Fates, Fates and, and Furies. Furies. Yes. Which, like, uh, the, the arguments that were made against Fates and Furies later in the tournament are all arguments that I do not begrudge any of those readers to have. I personally believe that they are all wrong. But <laughs> I don't begrudge them. The But just Bats was such a baffling book on so many levels to me um, in a way that like it should have it should have broken right for me in so many ways and then it just kept not as I was reading it and I was like okay uh oh uh, and to go up against my favorite book of last year in the first round uh, was was particularly crushing yeah, you knew I... almost immediately that it was a zombie though I did know that yeah that it had me on skin like lacquered walnut meat in, in Fates and Furies, and I was like, "Yep, oh, I'm gonna love this book." <laughs> like, yeah, no, it was uh, it was the tree that lit up like dendrites. Yeah. Oh man. Ooh. <laughs> so you didn't. Good. You Will was looking at a book. Christopher was not looking at a book. <laughs> I had a lot of fun this year. Um, I thought the conversation was really cool. The the guest commenter the guest commentator conversations were really cool. Um, I thought we got more into the meat of all of the books than we have maybe in 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 past years. So now we we come to the end of of uh, an episode of so many damn books, and we never end an episode without telling people to go and read something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Recommendations. Let's uh, let's start with you. What are you going to tell us to read next? Well, I'm gonna. I'm only sort of recommending this book because I didn't actually think that it satisfied me on the way that I wanted a book like this to satisfy me. Um, Be Frank With Me by Julia Claiborne Johnson. Um, It's this really sweet book about um, this woman who works for a New York publisher and she's sent to go like babysit 
sort of like a a female J.E. Salinger type character who she wrote one huge book and now she has to write a second one uh, if so that she doesn't go bankrupt. Mm. And so she's babysitting her, but it turns out she's not babysitting her so much as she's babysitting her nine-year-old son who is uh, like just one of the most delightful characters that I have encountered in fiction in a long time. He's nine years old, his name is Frank, and he dresses like a 1930s movie character every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's so, like, the meeting this character of Frank, he's so fascinating and so much fun to be around and so frustrating. And I don't know the last time that I was so delighted by a fictional character. But Frank himself is so fun as a character that um, I can't, I can't knock or I recommend meeting Frank. So that's my recommendation. What do you recommend, Nasley? Can I recommend a book that's not going to come out until September? Of course. Yes. Okay. You probably went to high school. <laughs> <laughs> you probably have feelings. Maybe some at some point in your life, music has meant something to you. If these things are true, you should read my friend Zan Romanoff's uh, debut um, YA novel, A Song to Take the World Apart, um, that is about sirens and privileged LA teens and bands and love and it was so great um and i'm very excited for it to come out wow yeah it sounds great yeah i'm on board yeah <laughs> totally drew uh i'm recommending something that i will go ahead and make the very early prediction that it ends up on the short list next year uh i can't imagine it won't be on the long list alvaro enrique's sudden death uh which it is my favorite book that I've read so far this year. It um, it's so weird, and it's it's if it's uh when you know that he and Valeria Lucelli are married, um, a lot of things about like both of their writing makes sense, and you're like, oh yeah, I can see how these two people would be married. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a tennis match between Caravaggio and the Spanish poet Quevedo in 1599 with tennis balls that are uh, purportedly filled with the hair uh, from Anne Boleyn's decapitated head. But it's also about conquistadors in Mexico. It's about Enrique writing this novel and trying to figure out what it means to write a novel and to make up things that happened in history. It's like, it's wild and it's weird, but I really loved it. Um, I've got a book of criticism that kind of took over my entire 2015. Um, Michael Hoffman's Where Have You Been? Uh, I think I read, he, you know, he is a brilliant critic. His recommendations on particular translations of like Anna Akhmatova and, you know, are, are it's so funny because there were these people that were always close to me that I thought would be more resonant with me. And I think more often than not, I was just reading the wrong translation. So mm. Hoffman kind of points you in the direction for, you know, what's great about so much great literature. And, um, it's made, you know, a big difference. His first volume is also great. Um, but he, I think he's my favorite critic. He's, I, I, I read him and I'm just like, damn. Um, the other uh, I think he's in Florida, but he's originally German. He's actually the son of uh, Gert Hoffman, the guy who wrote uh, my favorite first-person plural 
novel, uh, the parable of the blind. It's, it's really, but he has big problems with his dad and that is a lot of Michael Hoffman's poetry is about that. Um, the other thing I really want to plug, which is taking over my 2016 is, uh, video essays, like specifically every frame of painting, uh, you can go on YouTube and search those out. The, the first hit a crack should probably be the, the movie, uh, the essay on Buster Keaton, but I didn't know this form really existed. It's pretty incredible. So it's like, uh, 10, like a 10 minute critical essay. That's then, uh, the backdrop to, in the in the foreground like what you're actually watching are these 20 different films that are edited by these you know really smart people to illustrate points of like composition and framing and things like that um video essays i don't know they're not going to cost you anything i I think they're so fascinating because often at the end of one i'll like be like oh my god you have me like uh, replace my entire brain and then i like shake my head and i'm like wait a second Mm -hmm. what did i just agree to (laughs) Um, but it's like a testament to how captivating it can be that i want like to listen to someone speaking they always speak very fast Mm -hmm. um and just like like it's it's just feels so direct Uh, well thank you so much for joining us will and nasli we really appreciate it yeah thank you guys thank you so much for to all three of you for making uh my tournament experience this year great to to watch i don't know thanks to all of you too (laughs) (laughs) i hope that we keep talking about all these books after uh christopher presses stop also oh i'm sure we will yeah um and to you listeners out there we really love it when you contact us in any of the ways that are possible so many damn books on all the things but really uh itunes reviews really really help us out even if you just go in and give us some stars we really appreciate it the more stars the better uh yeah thank you (laughs) that's it i think right oh oh there's one thing what thing uh the culmination of our bet oh right yeah i'm uh i'm gonna be giving drew star girl by jerry spinelli um because he won and i lost yeah. And I told him that my choice was a book that he's told me I need to read that I haven't yet. And that's, you know, uh, w- probably one of the finest books ever written in Amer- the American English language. Uh, it is, well, we'll talk about it after you read it. Yeah. Woo! Reading! Reading. Let's keep reading books. What do you think? Uh, Nasli, do you have a do you have a, a moment or, or something that wraps up this year for you? No. <laughs> 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 <laughs>